0: Verse number 1. Again, thank you for being with us this morning. I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service. Brother Mike will be speaking and we'll observe communion this evening. And then the teens will have some part in the services, so I hope that you'll come. And that'll set you up for the fellowship that'll follow in the ministry building after everything finishes here. If you would, look at Romans 8, verse number 1. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus so then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Interesting passage of Scripture from which we've taken our message today, It's Possible to Live Holy. That's the title of the message. And I must quickly add that it's not only possible, it is expected, and yea, verily, it's commanded. First Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 16, you well know, for as it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. This passage of Scripture, what Paul has set forth before us in Romans chapter 8, it's important and extremely important, I might add to you, is to keep the understanding of the progress that he makes through these verses. They are, as it were, connected by a golden link, and it's important that you not break it. In the first place, in verse number 1, there is now no condemnation to everybody who is in Christ Jesus. That's the obvious um, place to start because that's the way a place the Christian life starts. It's the new birth experience. Those who have come to faith in Christ. You sit here this morning, and if you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're not in Christ. And it's imperative that you understand that if you're not in Christ, there will be no place for you in heaven. And it's a place that He goes to prepare for those who are in Him. It is not that He goes to prepare a place for everybody he goes to pray, prepare a place for those who are in Christ. And that's the most essential and most basic and fundamental truth that anybody in this room has to deal with. Am I in Jesus Christ? And by the way, I wouldn't make in so much on what I feel and what I think. I would base it purely, and if it is to be a legitimate e- evidence, it has to be given from Scripture. Not from feeling, well, I feel like I am I just think I am. I'm, I've got this good sense about that I am. Uh, I'll, I'll be frank with you. There are some folks maybe sitting here this morning who have that, who is in real doubt as to whether or not you've really sincerely have been born again because salvation is not of man. It is of the Lord. And that means that it has to start with the work of the Spirit of God. Uh, I fear. I heard a testimony a day or two ago of a person telling me that they had gone to visit this individual 18 or 20 times and finally on the 18th or 20th time they persuaded them to come to faith in Christ. I'm a little shaky about that because you see there's something troubling to me that if you present the gospel 18 to 20 times to someone and finally on the 18th or 19th decision they come to you and say, Hey, look, okay, I think I'll really leave on Christ. I, I would feel much better about it if they said on the fifth visit or something, God's speaking to my heart and working in my life, and and I'm convinced that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I'd like to talk to you about this. This thing of coming again and again and again, I fear sometimes folks say, hey, look, the only way you're going to get this guy off your back is if you make this religious thing whatever he wants you to do, and let's be done with it. You see, I think there's a difference between nagging and convicting. I believe the Spirit of the Lord convicts people, and when He convicts people, I don't think anybody has to drag them down an aisle of a church to get them to make any decision. I think they'll run down to a church and say, my God, have mercy upon my soul. And I think therein lies the difference of what we face. That's sort of, as it were, the foundation of verse 1 of chapter 8 because it's these people who are in Christ who have really a sense of security knowing there is no condemnation left to be dealt with. But verse 2, it starts out, for or because, it's the same word, the law or the principle of the spirit of life in Christ has freed me from the law of the principle of sin and death. That means this business of the Holy Spirit's work that has implanted in every believer who is in Christ, he has implanted in those people this business of the spirit of life. And that's what gives us the spiritual dimension that we have. Uh, Everybody doesn't have it. You walk outside this church this morning, go into the streets of Franklin, Indiana, there'll be people out there dumber than a duck concerning spiritual things. They may know where the Ten Commandments are found. and might even quote four or five of the Beatitudes. and might even tell you the love chapters in 13 to 1 Corinthians. But that's not enough. There is a life principle here that has to be evident in the believer. And that's what verse number 2 is saying. For or because the law or the principle of the Spirit of life, when the Holy Spirit of God came into my life, He freed me from the law of sin and death. If that's not true, then you're not saved. Number 3. He says, for or because the law of Moses now could not do in me because of my flesh weakness. So God sent his son for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. You see how it's following. Verse 1 says there's no condemnation to them in Christ. For or because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. Why? For or because... What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 3 knocks out everybody who ever said on any occasion, One, I know I'm going to heaven because I keep the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. Verse 3 says, Can't be done. People say, well, I tell you what, I'm going to heaven because I have emulated, I have followed the model of Jesus Christ in every aspect of my life. I've looked at him from every angle, and I've watched him, observed him, read about him, and I'm modeling my life after Jesus Christ. Therefore, I know I'm going to heaven. I have bad news for you, my friend. You're not going to heaven if that's the basis on which you think you're getting there. Because Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. So for you to model your life after Him, you'd have to keep the law perfectly, and that would contradict what verse 3 just said. It is not in the flesh of man because of the weakness of flesh to accommodate or fulfill the law of Moses that God gave to man. That's what verse 3 said. But let me tell you something. There's some exciting news that comes in verse 4. Verse 4 is almost like a turn of the page, even though it's not even a change of a chapter. In verse number 4, after you read verse 3, that God sent His Son because of the weakness of sinful flesh. And in doing so, He made Him in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Why do you think He sent His Son into the world? Wouldn't you think that some people would raise up and say, I know because He didn't want people to go to hell. That's not the first reason. You say, I tell you what, I think He wanted people because He wanted people in church. That may be true, but that's not the first reason. You see, verse number 4 literally is giving you the mind of God of what's the first reason why God sent His Son. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That you might obey the law. That you might keep it. That you might be a holy person. That you might be the kind of holy person that, that if a person could keep the law, that's the kind of person they would be. In fact, that's exactly what his point is. Why are we saying Christ came? He came that, or so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. By the way, there is no contradiction between what verse three says—that is, that the law could not do something in that it was weak through the flesh—and then verse four saying that the righteousness of the law is in fulfilled in us who are in the flesh. Not a contradiction. A change. A change. A change. And that's important for you to understand. The change is as the change has taken place in your life. There is no contradiction here. It simply marks a new period of living. We cannot do now or we can do now what we could not do before. And the reason the law could not do what needed to be done was it operated in the sphere of the flesh. And when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you entered into a new sphere because the Holy Spirit of God came into you to put you in that sphere. That's what he's saying. And that's an exceedingly important thing. Not for salvation, by the way, all along here. Notice something. He's dealing also with the business of these people about sanctification. Salvation is the business of no condemnation of verse 1. And as he continues through the chapter, though, he's talking and dealing with sanctification. Sanctification. That's what verse number 4 is. Verse 4 is that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in you or in me, in us. That's sanctification. Sanctification. That's the holiness of God being demonstrated, advertised, as it were, in the lives of people. So here's the thing. God did not just save you to keep you from going to hell. God saved you to emulate, to pattern, to demonstrate to the world how holy he is. That's exactly what he says. And that's exactly what this verse says. Some people get the idea then, and Paul is dealing with this among these Romans. They think that justification is by faith. And sanctification is by struggle. Justification by faith, sanctification by struggle. What do you mean? Well, I mean simply this. They got this idea that God saves saves us by His grace through faith, and then we have to fight a good fight in order to stay against sin or stand against evil. And uh, therefore, if we do it and do it well, then, okay, we're sanctified. Let me say to you, there is to be sure a great battle that's fought concerning sin in the believer's life. Romans chapter 7, we spent all those 25 verses talking about that problem. For sure that's true. But you have to understand something, that as surely as we talk about fighting the good fight, you need to get the whole verse of where Paul quoted that. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 12, and it says, Fight the good fight of faith. Let me tell you this, and it's important to understand it. Our battle with sin, first of all, is indeed fought regarding our faith. And I mean by that, taking God at His word. The faith that we stand for is what God has said. We stand upon that. That's the faith of our fathers. That's the faith we are to propagate. That's the faith that gives us encouragement to move onward. It's what God has said. If it was just some man's creed and some denominational concept, it wouldn't mean much to me and wouldn't mean much to you. And people would not have died for it. But what we're talking about is the faith, and that faith is what God has said. The first, first battle you fight concerning your sin in your life is fought in your faith. What is that? On what God has already said. And let me explain it further because that's what Paul's getting at here. We were not saved to be freed, as it were, from the slavery of sin so we could just go out and do as we pleased. We were saved so we could go out and do as He pleases and so which is reflected in the righteous demands of the law. That's what it pleases God, these righteous demands of the law. Back over to chapter 7 in verse number 12 where it says, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Uh, what that says is that that's everything that every believer ought to be. Holy, just, and good. So what the law says is exactly what we're to be. And the thing is, however, you can't keep it and you can't meet its standard without help. And that's what this passage is about. It's saying you need help. You cannot be what you ought to be as a Christian without help. And this chapter is offering that help. And uh, we can be all we ought to be because of the provision that's been made in this passage. Notice again, verse 4. In chapter 8, verse 4, That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's to say that the law was fulfilled for us. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, living a perfect law-keeping life and then dying as a perfect sacrifice, sinless sacrifice. That's what Jesus Christ did. Now, since we are in Christ, and as Paul wrote in Romans, Christ in us, which is the hope of glory, he simply says this righteousness of the law has potential of being fulfilled in us. He can look down on us, and because of that, the law can be fulfilled in us. You can do certain things now that you know Christ that you could not have done before. And that suggests, by the way, in this context when you read verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Can you not see in that verse or phrase a passivity about us? We're passive. We're not the active force in that verse. He's doing something through us or in us. So I submit to you that God is doing something in us just like he did when he saved us. So sanctification is not you scratching and clawing so you can be holy. It is you understanding, first of all, that God made a provision so you could be holy. And once you know that the provision is made for you to be holy, he's saying, I expect you to be holy. That's why he can go to 1 Peter and say, be ye holy. How could you say that if you didn't provide me with the accommodations, with the provisions? And he has. And Romans chapter 8 is a a, a capsulated summary of what are the provisions so I can live a holy life. Christ came into this world to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why did He do that? So I wouldn't go to hell? Surely that's on the list, but it's not first. The first thing on the list was so that the righteousness of the law could be fulfilled in every believer. Every believer could walk across the stage and say, hey, uh, you know, I couldn't do it before, but I can do it now. I can abstain from every appearance of evil. I can walk circumspectly. I can be above reproach. I can do what I ought to do. I, cannot lie. I can not lie. I can certainly say I am not going to lie. I can stay from that. And I can do everything else that the law demands in that context. Why? Because I'm a great, weak, or a great flesh person, better than the weakness that most have. No. Because the provision that God made in the life that He put inside of me by His Holy Spirit. And that's what this passage is saying. First Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read that passage to you. It correlates and coincides with this one very well. It's in first chapter of Corinthians. It begins in verse 26. Here's what Paul wrote there. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty men, literally, after the flesh. Not many noble men after the flesh are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world who confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. So that, or in order that, no flesh, verse 29, should glory in his presence. And that's an important part of the whole scenario. Still, it's not an issue of weak flesh fulfilling the law of Moses. It's not that. There's a new provision that's been made above and beyond the weakness of flesh. So verse 29, no flesh can glory in the presence of God. Verse 30, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus... Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, note carefully, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord. But of him, verse 30, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us, You see, Christ is made unto us by the Holy Spirit all the things we need so we can be all that we ought to be. That's what verse 30 is saying. You can be what you ought to be because the Holy Spirit has made Christ to you everything you need to live a victorious, successful Christian life. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 is saying. Now, go back to a passage of Scripture in the book of Philippians. Here it is again in Philippians chapter number 2, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The key words are in that verse of Scripture, it is God which worketh in you. It is God which worketh in you. His point is that he's talking in Philippians chapter 2 to born-again believers at the church at Philippi. These people were already saved by the grace of God. They were on their way to heaven. And what did he say to them? He says, God's working in you. Well, what in the world is God working in me for? I'm already saved. I'm going to heaven. He's working on you to cause you to conform to the likeness of Christ and to fulfill the righteousness of the law of Moses in you. And so I say to you that that's the whole concept in Romans chapter 8 that said, for this means that the highest Christian life lived is not as much an effort as it is an effect. It is not as much an effort as it is an effect. You couldn't do it apart from the fact that the Holy Spirit is present and His work there is what helps and prompts you to do that which you ought to do in cooperation with what God has designed you to do. And this passage of Scripture, it's not of chance, it's of choice. In fact, I don't think there's anything in the Christian life that is a more a choice than Sanctification. And that's what this passage of Scripture lays out before us. It is a level of which you and me and everybody else who claims the name of Christ must choose on an ongoing basis that which we ought and that which is right. I have, and I know you have, I'm certain you have, in the time past, always wondered about that age-old question. Quote, what is it that makes the difference between Christians? I'm the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church, and the difference among our fellowship is profound. I mean profound. How are all these Christian people so different? How come there are some who are so selfish and so self-centered and others who are self-sacrificing and selfless? How is it that you have some that are so sour and some that are so sweet? How can you have some that are so grouchy and others have so gracious? How can you have that? How can these folks all be saved, all go to heaven, and all of them be so different? I can tell you, it is in one word, choice. Choice. You are the subtotal of all the choices you make concerning these matters. And you get to choose. None of this is forced on you. You are not what you are because you have to be. You are what you are because you choose to be. And unless you accept that, you won't grow one iota from where you are at this very moment. Our problem is we have this succinct ability to blame everybody else for our inability to be what we ought to be. Every failure we commit, we want to look to somebody who caused it. We either look to the government or we look to our community or we look to some other body, some other warm body around us who would be fitting for our target. They're the reason I'm not what I ought to be. And I say to you, what Paul the Apostle is doing in this text of Scripture and what above and beyond him the Holy Spirit is doing is taking away all of our experiences of excuse. It's saying simply you can't use that because you get to make the choices that will make up the difference of what you really are. And I say for that reason, they have the same faith you do, these people do, but they are different in their choices they make on a day-to-day basis. And as you make different choices and choices that conform to the, the holiness of God, yours will be the same way. You see, Romans 8, 4 says, In effect, those Christians in whom the righteousness of the law is fulfilled are those who walk, or put in the word, those who choose rightly. Those who choose rightly, not after the flesh... But after the spirit, you see the provision for your deliverance in mind from the power of sin is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he freed me from the enslavement of sin. But you listen to me and you listen to me good. The experience and the appropriation of that provision in my life and making it to change my conduct comes through. My submission to the Holy Spirit that was placed inside of me, of which verse number two talks about the life of Christ. And the Holy Spirit inside of you, you have to submit to on an ongoing basis. Every single day, every single hour, every single moment. As you do that, then sanctification becomes a reality in your life. And it's out of your cooperating with the Holy Spirit that indwells you for which Christ died so it could happen on the cross of Calvary. That's what Romans chapter 8 is saying. By the way, if you don't believe that's an important aspect of salvation, look at chapter 8 and verse number 9 where it says very simply, chapter 8 verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And then he makes a succinct statement. He says, now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You see what he's saying? Is that the Holy Spirit is an evidence that you're going to heaven. By the way... Technically, it's probably the only real evidence that you're going to heaven. I don't mean that, that people look at you and say, well, that's a holy person. Well, sure they are. But anybody can, you know, you can get a book that as holy, you know. Don't say this and don't say that and do it this way and do it that way. You could practice after a few weeks and be holy like everybody else. And nobody can see any differently. Say, oh, yeah, that guy's holy. He's going, he's saved, he's going to heaven. He's holy. Look at how he acts. Look at the words he uses. Look at the language he speaks. Look at the group he runs with. You'll forgive me, but all those are secondary evidences. The one primary is this Does the Spirit of the Living God live inside of you? If He has not the Spirit of God, of Christ, He is none of His. And that's the bottom line litmus test to whether people are going to heaven or not. You can con me, you can con everybody in this city. You can con everybody in this world, but you can't con the Holy Spirit. He knows His own, and He absolutely knows who are His and who belong to Christ and who is in Christ. And He's not wasted. So if this morning you sit here and the Spirit of the living God does not indwell you, then I have news for you according to the authority of Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9. I don't care what your mouth says and what your brain thinks, you're not going to heaven. And you need to face the reality of that. You don't need to wait till you're two breaths away from death and your heart's about to stop and your blood is already coagulating to quit, moving through your body, and say, I got a question about my salvation. You need to stop right here, right now, and say, you know, I don't think the Spirit of God dwells me because there's no inclination inside of me that drives me, pulls me, magnetically pulls me toward the things of God. And that's exactly what the Spirit of the living God does inside of you. That's what makes sanctification in a believer possible, is the Spirit of the living God indwelling you. Otherwise, you couldn't do it if your life depended on it. You can't keep the Ten Commandments. You could not obey God's statements of law concerning holiness. But when He imparts His Spirit inside of you, He says, Now you can do what you ought to do. I've given you provision, given you the help, and make it possible. By the way, there's a key word in Romans chapter 8 in verse number 4. It's that word walk. The Greek word for walk refers to a habitual way or a bend of a person's life to, I guess you might say, over the whole of their lifestyle literally the word in the greek for walk carries with it a path often walked upon or a path often taken it's a road well worn when we uh, lived at one of our homes we had a we had a, one of the dogs in the backyard when he he made a path around the yard and and it was so obvious where that dog had been. I mean, his path was so distinct. Every day he made the same path. And you could just follow that. You know, you knew exactly where he was going from this point to that. And you knew exactly what he was going to do when he got there. All these things were evidenced by the path that he had. That word walk in this passage of Scripture indicates the pattern of your life. So when he comes to verse number four, of chapter eight, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, whose pattern of life is to do what's right rather than do what's wrong. And that's a qualifying statement for verse number 4. It's a qualifying statement. I was reading just this week over in Luke chapter 1 and verse 6, and it said, "...they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless." And out of Luke chapter 1, of course, that's uh, Zacharias and his wife. He was saying these folks, the pattern of their life, they were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameness. Nobody could point at them and say, hey, like they flubbed up here. They messed up there. It's the fact of the passage is It say it was the bend of their life. It was the pattern of their life. That's the way they lived their lives. They patterned it in that text. And I say to you, that's what the word means in this context. He's talking about people who pattern their life in that way. Put it another way, and this is probably the better way. God wants every believer to have more. God wants every believer to have more. God wants every believer to have more than imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness will get you into heaven. But a practical righteousness will affect others coming. You see, it's one thing for you to get there, and you get there because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But if anybody's going to come with you to heaven, it's going to take a practical righteousness on your part. Because you're a walking billboard either for or against the work of God in a person's life. If you tell people that you know God and you act like you live for the devil, you think that's going to be an advertisement for me? If you do one thing at church and you go home and do something else in your home, you think that that God's going to overlook that? You think that's going to fly? You think you can just come into public and it's, it's God's judging whether you get to heaven or not by the way you are in public? You see, if it doesn't make a difference at home, then there's a big question mark whether or not it's even there at all. Whether or not you are really in Christ. Because remember, the word walk means a pattern of life this is the way this guy's life is it's his bend of how he lives that's the difference what we somehow want to do is we want people to look at us at our best and judge me at my best do i get to go to heaven or not god said that's not the issue the issue is does the spirit of the living god entwell you if he does if you do that which is wrong and you're inconsistent and you are a hypocrite then i'll bring it to your attention privately And that's where conscience comes in. That's where the Holy Spirit pricks and speaks. And He deals in accordance way with what He knows is right and the standard of correctness laying it alongside of your behavior. All of that has to do with sanctification. This business of righteousness that's used in verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk or have a pattern of our life not after the flesh, but the pattern of our life is after the Spirit. That's... uh, to tell you and we'll deal with it more exclusively next week that's not talking about backslidden believers here that verse of scripture in verse number 4 is descriptive of people in saying people who are really saved walk after the spirit people who are not saved walk after the flesh and we can prove that by the context from verse 4 through verse number 9 where it talks about the spirit of the Lord indwelling them You see, this idea that we're making excuses for our behavior and it makes it easier for us to do that which we know is wrong, Paul just just sort of cuts that out of the words. He's going to use this to do that. Not in my scriptures. Not in the Holy Spirit's backyard. Something else to be noted here in Romans chapter 1. Paul wrote this himself. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For therein, for therein, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written "The just shall live by faith. Did you realize that? It's so easy to quote Romans chapter 1 in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now stop. verse goes on in context. For therein, when you believe on Jesus Christ and trust Him as Savior and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, for therein then what happens? The righteousness of God is revealed. You know why He saved you? To reveal His righteousness. Are you revealing the righteousness of God this morning? Everywhere you go, do people know God is holy because of watching you? You see, that's what he's saying. I want to reveal to the world that God is holy. How do I do that? Well, first you just get saved. That changes a lot of things in its own. But then you go through a second one. The ideal is that the process of sanctification begins to pick up and the Holy Spirit that is indwelling you speaks to you, convicts you, and conforms you to the holy standard which God has set for us. And he says and does further. I was reading this week a passage Paul wrote over to Titus. Let me read it to you. I've marked it in my Bible in chapter 2. And uh, it's a familiar text. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15 of Titus 2 simply says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust." We should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity, and what else? Purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. What's interesting, verse number 15 concludes, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise you. Two or three things I import that relate to Romans chapter 8 here. The first one is this, in the, in the passage where he says, for the grace of God bring us salvation, appeared to all men, teaching and denying ungodliness, worldly lust," we should live. And those three words, first one is soberly. Soberly, translated in some passages, self control, and another place, sound of mind. It's personal. That's the first one. Soberly. You should live soberly, sound mind, self controlled. There's a the second one, and it's righteously. That word is translated in other places as right before others. So other folks look at you and see a righteousness, see the righteousness of God revealed in you. Then that third word, they're godly. That is the ideal that you reflect a godliness before a world that thinks better of God for having met you. That's what he says. That's what it means. Godliness. So that people think better of God because of reflecting upon the way you act. And those three words then take in all account. Soberly, that's you. Righteously, that's you with others. Godly, that's you before God, before others. And God looking and working through your life to make that holiness a very obvious thing to them. I would remind you that holiness is very close fellowship and friendship and even family member with righteousness. Holiness and righteousness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness. Listen. Holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's shooting from the hip. Holiness without which. If you don't have it, he's saying you ain't going to make it to heaven. Now, we can do a couple of things. We can say, first of all, I think that is imputed righteousness. Now, you can say that, but that's not all there is in this. Imputed righteousness makes it possible to be holy, and I grant you that much ground. But what he's saying is this, if you've really got the Spirit of the Lord in you, there's going to be an obvious, conspicuous holiness to go along with it. And without that, you're not going to get into heaven. That's what he's saying. We want to make it so, well, it must be something that God is going to just give to me and I can give him a ticket. He'll stamp it and I go through the gates. That's not what it is. The stamp He gave you was the Holy Spirit that indwells you, and the Holy Spirit that indwells you was there so that you would fulfill righteousness, so you would be holy, a kind of holy that affects every aspect of your life. It affects the kind of language that falls from your lips and passes your tongue. It's the kind of holiness that reflects in how you think and what you think upon. It's the kind of holiness that dictates the kind of people you run with. It's the kind of holiness that controls a remote control in a video that you watch. It's that kind of holiness. It's easy to come in here and talk holy, sing holy, and act holy, and then go home and be a devil. By doing every single thing that the Scriptures would prohibit you from doing. And if you've been saved by the grace of God, you can't do it. You can't do it without conviction of heart. If you can do it and not be convicted, let me tell you first, my friend, that you have never been saved by the grace of God. Because you cannot do sin and act like you're not sinning and be a happy camper. God's made that process impossible. Because when he put the Holy Spirit inside of your heart, he said, you can't sin and get away with it anymore. Before you could sin and enjoy. Enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. What season? Just as long as you stayed in an unregenerate state. But when you came down that aisle and you prayed a sinner's prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Christ's sake, a transaction of grace took took place in your life that could never be undone or recorrected. And that was the Spirit of the living God took up a residence in your life. And wherever he abides, there'll be no sin that would be acceptable to his presence. And he won't be acceptable to it. And that's where conscience comes in. That's where we get bothered by what we see and talk and do, and when it comes, conflicts and comes in contradiction to that standard of righteousness which God has set in His Word. So you see, this pattern, this passage, this scripture, all of it is set forth in the context. There is a holiness by which you will not get into heaven unless you have it. And it starts with an imputed righteousness that comes from Christ in salvation. But it is from that that grows out of it a submission to the Holy Spirit of God that tells people that you have the righteousness of Christ. And that's a practical righteousness that comes along. I read across the verse in Isaiah 35. It's a prophetic verse. has nothing to do with Paul's epistle. But I just found it interesting. It says, An highway shall be there and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring man, though fools, shall not err therein. A highway of holiness. Talks about a prophecy about down the road somewhere in the future of this world somewhere. There's going to be a road that God's going to call a way of holiness. And people who are not holy are not going to feel comfortable traveling on it word and the Hebrew carries with it the ideal they will not only be uncomfortable they absolutely will get away from it they don't want any part of that way of holiness that's exactly the way it is about the Christian life there is a sense in which the scriptures hold up before us that if you've been saved by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God is implanted in your heart there's a sense in which you could not possibly be happy in sin you can't go out and get drinking and drunk and enjoy it if you've been saved by the grace of God You can't go out and and shoot up dope and, and enjoy it as a Christian. You might, if it was your lifestyle before, you can fall into it. And that's what Romans 7 dealt with very clearly, very succinctly. But you'll not enjoy it. You'll be convicted of it. Because it does not parallel what your guest, the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you, approves of. And when he was implanted in your heart as that holy guest of heaven... His whole business was to sanctify you and to bring you into not only a righteousness that's imputed, but to a practical righteousness that will reflect and have impact on the lives of other people who are around you. You see, every parent in this room needs to be holy so their kids can see holiness of the Lord lived out. You don't need to point to the pastor of the church and the Sunday school teacher. You need to say, here's how you live holy. And you need to live holy. Every person in this room needs to set before themselves this concept of what the Scriptures teach succinctly, that sanctification is the actual goal of salvation. That's what God came about. God came down at Christmas, as it were, in the person of Jesus Christ to come into this world to deal with sin so that the people in this world could see people like you and me who believed on Christ as Savior have the righteousness of the law lived out in their lives. They wouldn't turn to us and say, man, look at this guy. And by the way, that's why the world wouldn't pat you on the back because the world would have to know that you can't keep all the law. That's the weakness of the flesh. That's why God would get all the glory if we do this thing right. There's a simple passage of Scripture. I close with it. Paul wrote it in Colossians chapter 2. It simply says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. I ran across an outline someone gave. It is not mine. I take no credit for it. But it very much says what needs to be said in light of all of Romans chapter 8 concerning this business of righteousness and holiness and it being fulfilled in our lives. And it's it's from those few verses in Colossians chapter 2. First one, it is an issue, he said, of decision. Decision. It says, but as many of you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. I come back to the very place I started with. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you in Christ? Is that a fact of your case that there is no condemnation to you because you are in Christ? Have there been a time in your life where you received or believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the first thing this passage of Scripture talks about. The second thing is, in Colossians 2, 6, is the issue of devotion. But as many are as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. The ideal there received Christ Jesus, the Greek says, the Christ, the Lord. It indicates a lordship. It, it indicates a mastership. It indicates somehow, some way, me understanding who it is that I've received. And I sometimes think we forget that. He's supposed to be the master and Lord of our life, not just the Savior of our sin. He's supposed to be the Lord, and He's supposed to be Master. He's supposed to dictate all aspects of what you do, what you abstain from doing. It's not what I tell you ought to abstain from. It's what He says you ought to abstain from. If I say it, you have a right to your opinion, and you have every right in the world to disagree with mine. But when He dictates something and says, this is what I want you to stay away from, as He did so clearly when He says, abstain from every appearance of evil, you don't have any debate. You have no argument He's made a declaration And you know what he wants from you He does not want you to sit down and apologetically Try to figure out a way around it He wants you to simply say I'm devoted to him And I'll do what he says period Devotion So it's an issue of decision It's an issue of devotion And then there's a third thing It's an issue of direction It says as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord So walk So walk in him What's that mean? Well, typically it means as you understand who He is, you ought to walk in such a way. Your life ought to have such a pattern to it that it would tell everybody who knows you the kind of God you serve and who the Lord's Savior who saved you, what He's really like. It means in the business of devotion and dependence on Him. It means in witness for Him, everything you do, people ought to be able to know Christ better because of watching you because that's the direction you're going. Your life ought to reflect a holiness of the Lord, and everything about you ought to stream out to them. I know Christ, and I'm not ashamed of it. I remind you from Romans chapter 8, in verse number 4, that holiness is salvation's goal. Holiness is the righteousness of the law fulfilled in you, and holiness is the Holy Spirit's work in your life with which you cooperate. And i mean cooperate by this god's sovereign he could do pretty well what he wants if he wanted to make you holy with a snap of his finger believe you me he could do that but the fact of the matter is he has chosen not to do it he has chosen that he wants you to cooperate with him you see it's something like but not exactly like going to the doctor for a problem physically you go to the doctor and the doctor as he has with some of our folks in the church he said here i prescribe this medication these folks in our church look at the medications. I'm not taking that stuff. And they put that stuff on the on the shelf. And they got worse. And they decided, maybe I better take a second look at that. So they look at it, and I, I'm not taking that stuff. Set it on the shelf again. And a few days later, call the doctor and say, hey, look, I'm getting worse. I'm not getting better. His first question, did you take the medication? Well, no. Well, what do you expect, you idiot? Now, no doctor in Franklin would say idiot, but... The fact of the matter is, that's what he's thinking. I gave you the medicine, and you were supposed to take it, and you paid me $175 to come and see me for two minutes, and you didn't take the medication? Are you crazy or something? And we'd say, no, Doc, we just didn't. I just, you know, I, I just, I, I don't like pills. And he'd say, that's going to be tough. You get a choice. You can either take the pills and not like the pills, or you can keep whatever it is you got. It's up to you. But if you want to cooperate with me, I can get you through this. You take the pills. We'll get over the sickness. You'll feel better, and you'll be back to yourself. There's a sense in which sanctification is exactly the same way and a sense in which it's not. The way that it is is this. God said, I've made all the provisions for you to be holy. Some of them you will not like. I can tell you right up front, you will not like it. You'll not like for the Holy Spirit to convict you sometimes if so you did something and you don't like them tell you you should not have done it. And you may even rebel about it. You'll not like that at all. But he says, if you'll cooperate with me, I can help you be holy. I can make you what you ought to be. But I remind you, it's still a choice. It's still a choice. The question is, will you make it? Our loving Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and the salvation we have in Christ. Thank you that we're not what we used to be. We're sorry that we're not what we ought to be. But we do thank you for making the provision for us to be more than what we are. And this morning I pray that you'll drive the truth of Romans chapter 8 and verse number 4 deep into our lives. Help us not to make excuses, but help us to make progress in being just exactly what you want us to be you'll guard our steps and guide our lives help us to reflect the holiness of the holy God of heaven and help us to understand he's to be the master of our life he's supposed to be the one to whom we bow our will to his and not his will to ours I pray this morning for every believer in this room that you will affirm their faith and secure their position in Christ and may the word of God that they've heard be an encouragement to them to understand the great work and the great effort to which you've gone, Father, to make it possible for us to fulfill the righteousness of the law and to be a holy people. I then pray for people in this room who have never trusted Christ as Savior. And I recognize, Father, that when we talk about holiness and the presence of people who are pagan, who have never believed on Christ, who are yet in their sin, there's a great fear that would, be strict, would strike at the very heart of these people. Because their great fear is they can't be holy. Now, Father, what they don't understand is we couldn't either were it not for the great work of grace, Holy Spirit indwelling us, and causing us to move from glory to glory. We couldn't be. And that's the great excitement about this. This is a work of God from start to finish. Not just salvation, but sanctification is a work of God. has to be accomplished by the cooperation we as individuals have with the Spirit of the Lord that indwells us. So I pray for our lost friends this morning that they may understand that we're not asking them to be holy right up front. We're we're asking them to look and be honest about where they are in their relationship to the holy God of heaven. To understand that they're still under the condemnation of God. They're still in their sin. And Father, I pray this morning they may come to understand that the weight of that load can be lifted by their simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work where He died in their stead in their place to pay their sin debt. I pray this morning they'll see it. And, Father, help us not to persuade them by emotional appeal, but help us to tell them the truth and rest on the fact that it's the truth that sets men free. Thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit that is so faithful and so consistent in his work in each of our hearts. And thank you that even when we think we're right, he sometimes tells us we're wrong. And I thank you for his patience in dealing with us. And I thank you for yours. Bless now as we open our hearts to be obedient to you. Help us to do that which we ought and do that which we'll be glad we did in eternity to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if you need a hymn book, turn to page 282. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart first and foremost about your relationship to Christ, you've never believed on him as your personal savior we'd invite you to come and allow someone to take a bible and show you how you can be born again if you've been saved by the grace of god and the holy spirit has spoken to your heart about matters that relate to you and your relationship with the lord this morning then i invite you to come and spend some time here at the front this front pew makes for a good altar a good place to meet the lord obviously you can meet him there if that's your choice you're welcome to do that but let whatever the case may be just simply obey him what he prompts you do as we sing 282 verse 1 and let's sing together just as i am without one queen if god has spoken to your heart would you come god has spoken to your heart would you come Thank you for your time and your attention. Thank you for being with us. I do hope you'll be back for the evening service. Brother Mike will be speaking. We'll observe communion. And then uh, young people will have a part in the service. And then we'll have our birthday fellowship in the ministry building. So let me invite you to come again. And I do hope you'll have a good and restful afternoon. Let's bow in prayer as we go. Ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father, thank you again for the opportunity we've had to be in Sunday school, the worship service this morning. And thank you, Father, for the truth that we've heard, both Sunday school and now in the worship service. And I pray that you'll help us to become doers of the the word. And not just hearers, help us not to sit on it, but help us to act upon it. And I pray, Father, that you'll bless even as we plan on our return trip this evening. Bless Brother Mike and give him your liberty your power and blessing as he opens the scriptures to us. And prepare our hearts to receive it with thanksgiving. And bless our young people as they participate in the service tonight. And bless our time of communion. May our hearts be reminded of the great price that has been paid for our salvation. And may it encourage us, and may we be inclined to be more committed to the Master and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I do pray, too, you'll bless the evening fellowship. Uh, Such an important time to reaffirm our fellowship and the bond of love we have for each other. And I pray that you'll bless that time this evening and bless the food that will be brought and shared. And may you be honored by all the conversation that takes place in that building and the actions taken and attitudes shown. Thank you again for your answering prayer this week, and I pray that you'll continue to encourage your people in those matters of prayer that are so desperately needed now. And help us to be a help to people. Help us to die to ourselves, and help us to be alive and alert to others about us and what they may need and what we need to do to be a help and a blessing to them. Guide us now as we go from this place and bring us back to the evening service for your glory and for our edification. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Until we meet again, you are dismissed.